Good evening. American Deep Freeze. The House passes a $1.7 trillion spending bill. A call by faith leaders for a Christmas truce in the Ukraine war is ignored. Trump's legal dilemma and the mayor says New York is the joint. But pay your taxes. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Monday, December 26, 2022. The death toll from a blizzard striking the Buffalo region in western New York has reached 28. The bomb cyclone brought one of the worst weather-related disasters to the region as temperatures throughout the Midwest plunged deep into negative territory. President Joe Biden said his prayers were with the victims' families and offered federal assistance Monday to the hard-hit state. Erie County Executive Mark Polencars described the blizzard as the worst storm probably in our lifetime and warned there might be more dead. Scientists say global climate change may have contributed to the veracity of the storm, but a single weather event can rarely be tied to a specific change in climate. But experts add the dice have been loaded towards more extreme weather outcomes. Meanwhile, on Capitol Hill Friday, Congress cleared a $1.7 trillion spending package, sending the measure to President Joe Biden's desk. The package also contains major increases in national security, domestic spending, and billions of dollars to Ukraine. The House approved the measure by a nearly party-line vote of 225 to 201. On this vote, the yeas are 225, the nays are 201, voting present, one. On this vote, the motion is adopted. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and a potential GOP replacement, Representative Kevin McCarthy, sparred in dueling appearances, with McCarthy firmly opposed to the measure. This is a monstrosity that is one of the most shameful acts I've ever seen in this body. The appropriations process has failed the American public, and there's no greater example of the nail in the coffin, of the greatest failure, of a one-party rule of the House, the Senate, and the presidency of this bill here. Indeed, this bill puts people over politics. Mr. Speaker, it was sad to hear the minority leader earlier say that this legislation is the most shameful thing to be seen on the House floor in this Congress. I can't help but wonder, had he forgotten January 6th? Indeed, this is the day of immense patriotism. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and a potential GOP replacement, Representative Kevin McCarthy. Nine Republicans broke with McCarthy to vote for the measure. One Democrat, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez of New York, opposed it, while Representative Rashida Tlaib of Michigan voted present. Meanwhile, as the United States plans to send nearly $45 billion more in military aid to Ukraine, the government in Kyiv has proposed holding a peace summit in two months, possibly at the United Nations headquarters in New York. Ukraine's foreign minister, Dmitry Koleba, says diplomacy will play an important role in ending the war, saying every war ends in a diplomatic way. Meanwhile, Russia insists Kyiv must recognize the reality on the ground to begin peace talks, including recognizing provinces seized by Moscow in eastern Ukraine. Last week, Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky made a rare appearance by a foreign leader speaking at a joint session of the United States Congress. Against, against all odds and doom and gloom scenarios, Ukraine didn't fall. Ukraine is alive and kicking. We defeated Russia 
in the battle for minds of the world. We have no fear. Americans gained this victory, and that's why you have succeeded in uniting the global community to protect freedom and international law. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky, more than 100 years ago, on Christmas Eve 1914, the killing fields of World War I in Belgium heard the sounds of Christmas carols among the soldiers cowering in the trenches. Soldiers from the Allied and German lines began to slowly emerge and gather for a spontaneous and remarkable Christmas truce in no man's land. Enemies sang, traded food, played soccer. According to Time magazine, as many as 100,000 troops took part. Fast forward, Christmas 2022. A diverse coalition of nearly 1,000 faith leaders representing believers from every major tradition have signed onto a statement demanding a ceasefire in Ukraine. Initiated by the Fellowship of Reconciliation USA, the National Council of Elders, Code Pink, and the Peace in Ukraine Coalition, the call for a truce is based on the Christmas Eve ceasefire that occurred in 1914. Senior advisor to the Fellowship of Reconciliation USA is Reverend Graylin Hagler. He says Zelensky is involving religion in the war with a recent decree recognizing December 25th as the official Christmas holiday in Ukraine and not the traditional January 6th or Three Kings Day as practiced in most of Central and Eastern Europe. We were calling for a truce, a Christmas truce, and... Uh, you can see that the narrative is even being used to try to create a whole other perspective because you end up with someone like uh, Zelensky declaring the 25th as Christmas. That's not the Orthodox Epiphany. The Orthodox Epiphany is on January the 7th. But he says we're aligned with the West now, which is part of the conflict that's going on, that you got basically uh, two gangster nations, really the United States, and the Russians battling over territory, marketplace, and who's going to operate in what sphere. And so, uh, so that's part of the problem, that's part of the issue that's going on. So there's a need to sort of like create another narrative where we're not just cheering for a football team or a baseball team or a basketball team, but we actually are really focused on what it means to settle things in a civilized, constructive way. And where would this go? Has it been turned over to anybody? Will it be turned over to anybody? It's been sent to the White House. It's been sent to other political leaders. So it's out there. Uh, and it's growing. So it's the prophetic voice. Very often the prophets are considered the voices in the wilderness and also considered the agitators. Because in a sense, we question the status quo and we speak into the midst. Sometimes you speak into the wind. But when you speak into the wind, somebody hears it. Mm-hmm. And so it's different. What you're saying is, is a little different from other calls for a ceasefire. Yeah, it is. How is that? It's, ba- it's basically saying we got a moment in history in 1914 where combatants on their own climbed out of trenches and met each other and said that there needed to be a moment of peace. A moment of peace leads to communication. And in this case, you have combatants who voluntarily stepped out into no man's land and had to be forced back into their trenches. They said, they were basically saying, 
this is a rich man's war. And poor people are going to be killed in it. And so they were responding in a way that was not going along with the whole process that was in place. And so what we're saying is the narrative needs to be constructed. That we need to say that history is speaking to us right now. And we need to heed that history and heed that voice. Reverend Graylin Hagler is also Pastor Emeritus of the Plymouth United Church of Christ in Washington, D.C. And as religious leaders call for a truce, the war grinds on. A drone believed to be Ukrainian penetrated hundreds of miles into Russian airspace, causing a deadly explosion at the Engels Air Base for strategic bombers. Russia denied any planes were damaged, but there are social media posts saying several had been destroyed. Meanwhile, on Sunday, Putin said he was open to negotiations with Ukraine. The United States has provided $19 billion in military assistance to Ukraine in 2022, with another $45 billion approved by Congress. Professor of International Law at the University of Illinois College of Law, Francis Boyle, says Congress has become a rubber stamp for perpetual funding of a war against Russia. Adding, Patriot missiles being sent to Ukraine by the U.S. are a step towards establishing a no-fly zone over Ukraine and Russia. Obama put Biden in charge of the Ukraine project, in particular the coup d'etat against the democratically elected Yanukovych government that we overthrew and installed a uh, neo-Nazi regime there in Kiev. It appears somehow Hunter Biden is tied up into all this. I prefer not to speculate. And despite Oliver Stone's interview with Putin, this is wrong by Russia. They're the ones who are doing wrong here by invading another country, no matter what the provocation. I have personally toured the World War II front lines at Leningrad, where the Germans starved a million Russians to death. And I've toured the front lines in uh, Moscow. The Germans came basically near the end of the trolley line into Moscow. And I also spent a day long traveling all around Stalingrad, now called Volgograd. The savagery of the German army, the Nazi army there, took my breath away. I guess from the Russian perspective, they are dealing with a neo-Nazi regime being armed, equipped, supplied, and trained by the United States and NATO starting in 2014 when we launched this coup d'etat that is only 460 kilometers away from Stalingrad. Mm -hmm. Remember, the Soviets lost about 27 million citizens during World War II. They have a very different perspective on this than we do. This entire war could have been avoided last December when Russia tendered two peace treaties. I read both those treaties. They were very reasonable. And the heart of the treaties was that the United States and NATO had to agree that Ukraine would never join NATO and would remain neutral. It does appear from the public record that the Biden administration refused to negotiate in good faith over those terms. So here we are today. Is the war legal in the Middle East? Was the war legal in Vietnam? There was a lot of questions about the legality of that war. 
What is the legal questions, do you think, from a law professor's point of view? U.S. Secretary of State Jim Baker gave a solemn pledge to General Secretary Gorbachev that NATO would not move one inch to the east if Gorbachev agreed to the reunification of Germany, which Gorbachev did. And Bush Sr. kept that pledge. It was Clinton who violated it and proceeded to expand NATO right up to the borders of Russia. It does seem to me that under the Baker pledge, oral agreements are binding under international law. That would serve as a basis for negotiations here, that the Biden administration could say to Russia, okay, we agree with your basic demand. Under no circumstances will Ukraine join NATO. We'll agree that it shall be neutral between both sides and negotiate the rest of it from there. Francis Boyle is professor of international law at the University of Illinois College of Law. Ukraine has faced an onslaught of Russian big guns, missiles, and drone attacks since October, mostly targeting energy infrastructure, plunging the country into darkness as bitter cold sets in. And you're listening to the news from New York City. I'm Paul Durienzo. In more political news, a special grand jury investigating whether former President Donald Trump tried to overturn the 2020 election in Georgia is wrapping up its work. It's one of several probes that could result in criminal charges against the former president. The Fulton County grand jury is looking into a phone call with Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger shortly after the 2020 election, where Trump asked the official to find him some votes. I just want to find uh, 11,000 780 votes, which is one more than we have, because we won the state. So so tell me, Brad, what are we going to do? Well, Mr. President, the challenge that you have is the data you have is wrong. The Georgia investigation comes as the House committee investigating the January 6, 2021 attack on the United States Capitol by a mob of Trump supporters has referred the former president to the Department of Justice for possible criminal prosecution. A professor at the Thomas Jefferson School of Law and former president of the National Lawyers Guild is Marjorie Cohn. She says unlike Congress, the Justice Department has wide powers to investigate alleged crimes. What the special counsel of the Justice Department can do, besides bring criminal charges, that the January 6th committee cannot do is to issue search warrants, convene a grand jury, and to grant immunity from prosecution to witnesses who testify against Trump. I don't think this is going to happen immediately, uh, but I think that we may well see some criminal charges. How do we know that we won't make somebody like Trump more famous to his base, even more of a threat in the future by doing this? Well, he's pretty famous already, and his base is not, his real hardcore base is not going to change its opinion. They think that this was a put-up job, but I think that there are maybe mainline Republicans that are not squarely in his corner and may well have been influenced by this, these hearings and this report. How could we go 200 plus years and not realize there were gaping holes in American democracy? One of the big problems is this Electoral Count Reform Act, well, the Electoral Count Act, which Congress is now trying to reform. The Senate passed reforms to it, and the House is expected to do so. That's what Trump and his minions used 
to say that the vice president has the right to suspend or throw out electoral votes from each state that reflected the majority of votes in that state in favor of Biden. And so this Electoral Count Reform Act clarifies that the role of the vice president is purely ceremonial, that he or she tallies and certifies the electoral college votes and that only a state governor or another designated official may submit the election results. It also raises the threshold for objecting to electoral college votes, which now stands at one member in each chamber. So if one senator and one Congress member object, then that can actually put a, uh, you know, a crimp in the works. What this Electoral Count Reform Act does is to require one-fifth of the members of each House of Congress, the Senate and the House, to raise objections to the Electoral College votes. This will help to plug that hole, if it was a hole. But, you know, there were just so many indications for so long that this was going to happen, and the intelligence agencies knew about it. The Secret Service... Um, I think, was uh, covering up for Trump, at least uh, apparently. And uh, Trump was signaling from way before the election that uh, he was going to declare victory. He started screaming voter fraud long before the election. Um, he said he, he was intended to declare victory on election night no matter who was ahead, um, knowing that Democrats use more mail ballots than Republicans and their votes would not all be counted by election night. It never should have happened. It should not have been allowed to happen. Hopefully, there will be some accountability, not just to bring Trump to justice, but also to prevent another insurrection. Trump should never be allowed to hold elective office again. And one of the things that this report of the January 6th committee does is to recommend that the 14th Amendment, Section 3, be used to disqualify Trump from running for president. Section 3 of the 14th Amendment prohibits anyone who has committed insurrection or rebellion or given aid or comfort to the enemies of the United States from holding elected office. And Congress, of course, would probably has never happened before, but with a president, with a former president, so Congress would have to get involved, perhaps the courts would get involved, but that should definitely be pursued. And if he is charged and convicted, that makes Section 3 of the 14th Amendment even more compelling. Margie Cohn is professor at the Thomas Jefferson School of Law and former president of the National Lawyers Guild. And closer to home in local news. Last week, New York State's Cannabis Control Board announced Housing Works, a New York City-based nonprofit, will open Housing Works Cannabis Company, the state's first legal adult-use cannabis dispensary, on May 29th at 750 Broadway in Manhattan, near Astor Place. But the opening comes with a downside. Since personal use of cannabis was legalized in New York State a year and a half ago, numerous unlicensed pop-up pot shops have sprouted, including trucks and sidewalk dispensaries. These are illegal under state law. Speaking last week, Mayor Eric Adams said he's initiating a crackdown using civil enforcement and not police and fines against the unlicensed weed merchants who don't get a license and don't pay their taxes. And those unlicensed stores threaten the health the safety of New Yorkers by selling dangerous, unlicensed products. Um, some of these products have toxic uh, items in them. We don't know how they've been tested. We want to be clear that New Yorkers are safe 
and the industry grows. Uh, the adult use retail cannabis industry is a chance uh, for New Yorkers who were directly impacted by the war on drugs. Uh, they can have an opportunity to succeed. And these unlicensed stores are undermining uh, the market. They're getting in, in the way of productivity, and they're sending out the wrong message. We will not let the economic opportunities that we fought for to fall to the wayside. It's time the unlicensed stores stop selling illegal products and comply with the law. The mayor, who says he's never bought illegal weed, couldn't resist a pun or two. The cannabis industry is, is, is a budding uh, economy, I just realized that buds. Yeah. <laughs> Put that in here. <laughs> it's a budding economy. <laughs> and, and we want to make sure that we get it right so that we can say in the city of New York that we are the joint. <laughs> New York City Mayor Eric Adams. The 4,400 square foot Housing Works Cannabis Company space will initially be open Monday through Sunday from 11 a.m. to 7 p.m. It won't have munchies or provide entertainment, and the varieties of chronic available will be limited at first. Housing Works CEO Charles King spoke with the news. He says soon Legal Pot will be funding good works across the city. We see our move into this venture as an opportunity to provide employment, training, and the ability to advance in the cannabis industry to people who have experienced criminalization. Where do you get the cannabis that you're selling? At sure. Your- We're required to purchase from state licensed producers. We will be opening up with six brands next Thursday in our store, offering between 75 to 100 varieties of product under those brands. There has been... Can you tell us the names of some of the brands? There has been a delay in processors bringing their brands online and able to wholesale them because of the state's requirements over lab testing of every product. We certainly support the lab testing. The state has promised to expedite the process, and we intend to add another two dozen brands to our product line over the next couple of months. We will start with less product than we would like, but intend over the next couple of months um, to grow that product to completely fill the store with every possible variety that any customer might want to purchase from us. What do you say to folks who are afraid that this is going to herald a a crackdown on the sort of legacy dealers and some of these other folks who've been out there already? I don't think you're going to see a crackdown on legacy street dealers. Street dealing is going to persist. It certainly persisted in other parts of the country. You are going to see a crackdown on illicit businesses, whether they're operating out of vans or operating out of storefronts. I don't want to see anyone criminalized for possession or sale of cannabis, but certainly if we want to have a legal regulated market, folk need to come inside that market. Right now, there's something like $50 billion in cannabis sales annually across the country, and only 20% of those sales are happening in the context of a legal market. There's at least three consequences from that. First of all, the illicit market doesn't do any regulation to stop minors from purchasing. Second, there is zero quality control on their cannabis, and so much of what they sell is possibly adulterated. And third, they're not paying taxes. If 
as part of the purpose of legalization of sale is to provide revenues for services to the people of New York, you want the regulated market to be able to grow and thrive. I would note that with regard to tobacco and alcohol, there are still off-the-books markets for both of those types of products, but they are very, very small in contrast to the legal regulated market, which again means a much better quality of product as well as taxes going to provide for mm. government services. I think the fear is Eric Garner's situation. He was selling Lucy's, right? And that was enough of an excuse to get him killed. So to be sure... I am not worried that the police are going to invest a lot of time going after the street dealer. What the mayor and the Office of Cannabis Control should be taking seriously as a legal market comes online is going after the illegal business operations. I can't compete with a store two blocks away that can sell at lower prices because they aren't buying from producers whose product goes through expensive lab testing who don't have to pay city, state, or federal taxes. If you want a legal market to come into existence, you've got you've to support that market by not allowing these other stores to operate. I am not at all threatened by someone selling cannabis on the street. Anything you'd like to add? We intend to dedicate the profits from our cannabis business to combating the war on drugs. And that's everything from helping people who've been criminalized by the war on drugs, whether it's reentry, employment services, those things are very important to us, but also addressing policy issues right now in New York State. If you've got a criminal conviction uh, for a drug offense, you can't live in public housing. But ultimately, we would like to see drugs completely decriminalized, and we'd like to see a reduction of law enforcement as a tool to address substances, whether it's at the city level, the state level, or the federal level. And that includes removing cannabis as a Schedule One. Charles King is CEO of Housing Works. It was one of eight nonprofits that secured conditional adult-use retail dispensary licenses from the state's Cannabis Control Board in November. And that's the news for Monday, December 26, 2022. The news is produced by this reporter. You can hear the news at pauldurienzo.com. From New York City, I'm Paul Durienzo. Thanks for listening. <laughs>